are kids really thinking and feeling? Sometimes it's hard to know. The thousands of letters and emails kids send to Highlights Magazine every year help us keep our finger on the pulse of kids. We think they can also help you. So each week on this podcast, we share a few of the messages we've received from kids and we discuss them with an expert. Lean in and listen to learn what kids want their grown-ups to know about being a kid today. I'm Christine French-Cully, and you're listening to Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights, I have a problem with my temper. I your at night, and I miss I my cats. I get keys. I want your pet. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. When I learned recently that suicide is the second leading cause of death in children ages 11 to 19, I was quite honestly shocked. From time to time, we at Highlights receive letters from some of our readers who tell us that they have suicidal thoughts. The letters we receive are from kids on the younger end of this age range. And to be clear, we don't receive many letters like this, but they do come on occasion. And we have to believe that each one of these letters which reflects the child's deepest pain and raises the specter of a parent's worst nightmare, represents a few other similar letters that are thought about but never written. We reply to every child who reaches out to us, consulting, of course, with experts, and their letters both sadden us and raise our awareness of the importance of mental health support for kids. That's what we're hoping to do today with this episode of Dear Highlights, raise awareness of this important public health issue in a way that leaves you feeling hopeful. If you're a regular listener, you know that we usually begin our podcast by reading a few letters and emails kids send to us related to the episode theme as a way to better understand their feelings about the topic. But as I reviewed recent messages we received from children who wrote to us about their suicidal thoughts, I realized that for this podcast, reading letters is unnecessary. We don't need to hear the details about a child's personal anguish to understand the depth of their suffering. When they tell us that they are self-harming, that their sadness is overwhelming, or that they don't want to live anymore, which is often all the information they reveal in their letters, we've heard everything we need to know to commit to leaning in and listening. My guest today is Dr. John Ackerman, child clinical psychologist and the suicide prevention coordinator for the Center for Suicide Prevention and Research at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Nationwide Children's Hospital is one of the largest and most comprehensive pediatric hospitals and research institutes in the U.S., and this center helps schools and communities in Ohio implement evidence-based prevention strategies. Dr. Ackerman, thank you for joining us to shine some light on this important topic and to coach us on how to talk to our kids about it. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. Um, your, your introduction hit the nail right on the head. We need to talk about this more and we need to help the youth in our country really uh, know what to do about these difficult feelings and emotions. Although kids don't always reveal their age when they write to us about having suicidal thoughts, we at Highlights can pretty safely assume that they're under the age of 13, maybe 14. It's hard to fathom that children so young might actually contemplate suicide. How common or uncommon is it? So the response that you had was was assuming that it happens very infrequently, and, and that's been the case for so long. Part of what we um, try to understand uh, from our from our, our research studies and, and what's going on is how common is this really? 
Um, are young kids thinking about suicide? Are they, are they capable of acting on these thoughts? So those are important questions. And what we do know now, now that the research is starting to ask these questions, is that even among nine and 10-year-olds, about 6% of those individuals um, have had thoughts of ending their life. Um, and, and really, uh, 1% have actually made an attempt on their lives in that time period. So we know that even young kids uh, not only beneath 13 and 14, but, but as young as seven, eight, nine have had these thoughts. Um, they don't always look the same as older individuals. They're not always um, sort of planned and thought through in the same way. Uh, but we do know that, that young kids are, are capable. And so it's even more important that our um, awareness and support and the tools that we give to parents and educators are available uh, at these ages so that we're not waiting until a major crisis has emerged. We need to help uh, address these issues earlier than we're doing, um, and, and we're trying to set the path to do that. You know, I think sometimes as adults, we tend to think that we view childhood as this idyllic, carefree um, period of life, and really, it, it can be tough for a lot of kids. What are some of the reasons kids so young might consider taking their own lives? So, this gets really complicated, so I'll, I'll try to be very straightforward about this. Um, uh, suicidal thoughts or behaviors are typically not the result of just one specific event or action. We know kids experience loss, trauma, and strong emotions just like adults do. I think that was part of the misconception is that we did not think uh, previously that maybe uh, kids could have such deep emotions. They couldn't experience trauma and pain in the way that adults do it. And it, and it does look different, but we know that uh, relationship conflicts, loss, bullying, um, exposure to, to, to death or suicide, to having strong emotions without the tools to know how to, how to manage or regulate those emotions can, can be risk factors. Uh, we know that when a person is in a situation where things seem hopeless, um, that that can be a risk factor. And if you think about the difference between an adult and a young person, young people haven't always already gone through the ups and downs and the roller coasters to know that when I am at my lowest, things will eventually get at least a little better. They might see themselves at the bottom of um, that, that roller coaster and think things will never get better. So they don't have the ability to use life experience to draw from that. So when they hear things like, there are more fish in the sea, or, oh, just don't worry about it, things will get better. They, adults sometimes underestimate that that's not where they are emotionally. Um, we know that being very impulsive, which the brains of young kids naturally are, um, is a risk factor for, for suicide. Um, and so, um, you know, acting before processing strong emotions is something that kids will do more. So having access to things that they can use to harm themselves is a big predictor of whether a young person lives or doesn't live through a crisis. So we need to be very thoughtful about what our kids have access to, um, particularly uh, medications, firearms, and, and things that they can use to, um, to harm themselves. So uh, again, we're not getting into any of those details, but it is important to know as an adult, keeping your environment safe asking direct questions because kids don't always verbalize what they're going through and knowing um, how to set this foundation so that kids can come to you when they're in crisis are all very key to preventing suicide risk. Yeah. Do kids so young understand what it means to die? Do they uh, understand the finality of, of that? 
So um, again, probably a, a question that, that has a more complicated answer than you or any of the listeners want to hear, but um, kids are developing a, a, an, an improving ability to understand that, um, that they can do things to um, stop pain, that they can end their life, but they don't always understand what ending their life really means. We've worked with young kids who think, oh, I could kill myself and the function would be to, to die, but they could still imagine themselves sort of still like being part of everything that's going on or sort of floating above the scene and, 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 and believing that they're still a part of it, not understanding the, the full finality of it, um, not understanding the implications, not understanding the emotions of others, not, not knowing that that will have a, a sort of these lasting consequences that things, like I said before, will change, that they won't always be in crisis, that the crisis are generally short-lived um, and that they can do something to bridge the gap between that hopelessness, that despair, and starting to feel better again. Um, so that's that's always very important to, to provide that hope and that bridge between that crisis and, and that next step. Um, and, and I think that we underestimate that the kids do really think about um, suicide and killing themselves in 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 ways that will uh, lead them to take action on it. So again, they don't need to have the deepest understanding. They don't need to have all, all the nuances. Um, and, and I I will add here um, that there's a misconception that, um, that that kids are trying to get back at the people around them or that they. Um, that, that they have too many good things in their lives to, to feel like suicide is an option. Usually uh, things like depression or anxiety mask a young child's ability to understand that they are worthy of being loved, worthy of life. Um, so when they engage in suicidal behavior, they are not in their minds being selfish. They are actually relieving their loved ones, relieving their parents, relieving their friends of the burden of having them there. And that's the hard part. They're, they have a filtered view of the world. They have like, instead of rose-colored glasses, they have sort of these depression-colored uh, views of, of life. And uh, they, they honestly feel like, and in my experience working with them as, as a psychologist and individuals at risk, they feel like they're doing a really good thing for the others around them. And that's, the, that's heartbreaking. Um, but that, that's important for people to know that, that that's the way it is. That comes through in some of the letters we receive from children who are in deep emotional distress. They don't want to burden their parents by talking to their parents about them. Their parents have enough to worry about. They don't know where to turn, um, but they don't want to be uh, a problem or cause anybody worry or, or disappoint their parents. I think sometimes parents are afraid to talk about this with um, children who may be at risk because they think talking about it might make it more likely it will happen. Or maybe they're not really thinking about it, but if we talk about it, we might make it seem more real to them. Is that um, something you come across in your research? I would say that's actually probably the most common myth that we encounter. Um, and I, I can pretty clearly say it's a myth because there's been multiple research studies showing that you don't introduce the idea of suicide into a young person's mind by asking the question, are you thinking about suicide? Have you thought about killing yourself? Um, it's sometimes uncomfortable for adults to ask that question. And we think kids would react 
in a, in a really negative way or be distressed by that question. But there's actually been studies to show that not only does it not increase the, the young person's distress, but it actually um, helps young people feel like they're being listened to. Most adults don't ask those questions. They don't go to a child directly and give them the invitation to have a conversation about whether they feel like life is worth living or not. Um, it is incredibly relieving for a young person who's been considering suicide to have a trusted adult have a curious, honest conversation about this um, without trying to fix it immediately. Um, we, I am a, a parent of, of two daughters, um, seven and 10, and uh, we have had conversations about where they are with their emotional health. Uh, we have had direct conversation about, have you ever thought about wanting to take your life? Have you ever thought about wanting to die? And that's those are, as a parent, when I take off my psychologist hat, um, it's still an uncomfortable question, but I wait for the right time. If I saw warning signs, I wouldn't wait, <laughs> but I do, I do make sure that there are, um, you know, we're in a place where we've had lots of these conversations. We've given them language about emotions. We've talked about big feelings. And so when we get to this, um, you know, particularly, um, you know, a specific question, then uh, they're ready for it. But um, it, we do know it's okay to talk about, and we do know actually it's helpful for those kids who have been experiencing it. So if here, what will happen will, will be, if your child has not considered suicide, they'll say, no, no, that's not something I've, I've, I've felt or experienced. And then they'll move on. And if they have thought about it, um, they might begin to, you know, kind of circle around it or deny it. No, not really. I'm not sure. So if you're not getting a, a definitive no, there's a, actually a pretty good chance that they have considered um, ending their life or suicide, in which case you want to follow up. You want to talk to your pediatrician. You want to talk to a mental health professional. Um, and you want to follow this up um, in the short term with just a curious approach to it. I want to learn about where you are emotionally and I want to help um, make sure you know I'm along uh, with you on this ride. I'm going to be here with you. Um, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, whoever it is, um, you're not alone on this and it's okay for you to have these feelings. That's such an important call out. What are some of the warning signs that parents should watch for, signs that should trigger those important conversations? Um, there are a number of different warning signs. Most of them reflect changes from typical behavior. Um, so you know your child better than anyone else, and the things to look for are, are they having changes in things like mood, appetite, um, sleep? Are they um, acting uh, in a really irritable way? Are they acting in a way that um, they no longer are doing the things that they care about? Are they saying things like, um, I'm a burden, no one cares about me? Um, and then very specific warning signs um, are they researching ways to end their life? Have they talked to friends about death, dying, suicide? Are, are they really um, in a place where um, it, it's clear that um, you know, they're hopeless or burdened? So those are some of the things that we pay attention to. As you hear that list or if you kind of review that, you'll, you'll understand that some of those are not very um, abnormal changes in a young person. So again, knowing that these are things that occur um, for different kids uh, at different times, it's really, what's the extent of these? Are they lasting? Are they causing them to not do the things they care about anymore? Um, and, and so it, again, it's sometimes it does take a professional 
um, person to uh, mental health professional or pediatrician to kind of look at this and say, all right, you've now gone from what's a typical teen adjustment or preteen adjustment to this is more reflective of depression or high suicide risk. So we do encourage um, screening and asking very specific questions about suicide with our primary care partners, with our mental health professionals. So on that side of things, we do want, uh, if you're a parent and you're worried about it, you should make sure that the professionals they're working with are, are actually um, kind of doing an evaluation that's a, a suicide specific. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so important. It, it can be tough to parent those preteens or those kids who are sort of on the cusp of uh, becoming teenagers. Uh, but as you say, when I would say I would say with that, I, I think we probably wait too long to engage our children in mental health support, um, which I guess a silver lining perhaps of this pandemic is people are seeing that there are opportunities before a major crisis unfolds. I would, you know, it is from a professional side of view as a psychologist, I love when parents bring their kids in when there's maybe some emerging concerns, the likelihood that you need a, an, like an emergency room evaluation or intervention or that things will take um, years and years to get addressed is so low when you address a problem upstream and, and identify it early. So um, I would say if, if that's what you're looking for and those services are accessible, which is its own separate issue, uh, do, do try to get those needs met early and it's, it's, it can really be helpful. For family. Yeah. I've read that the number of kids uh, ages 6 to 12 who visited children's hospitals for suicidal thoughts or self-harm has more than doubled in the last five years. And I can't help but wonder if there aren't, if there aren't many more children who would benefit from this kind of treatment but aren't getting it. And is that because there's a stigma attached? Do parents feel like there's a stigma if they take their kids to seek help? Or do the kids are, try, are worried about that. Yeah, so uh, we definitely have seen an increase in children going to emergency departments for self-harm and, and uh, suicidal thinking. I mean, even just since 2016 to 2019, it almost it almost doubled from, um, from like 2,500 plus to, um, to close to 5,500. So there's, there's been a big jump. Um, part of that, I think, is, is families recognizing that there is support out there, but there are also just emerging stressors that, that, that look a little bit different um, and, and we are seeing more need out there. And on top of that, like you just said, Christine, it's, we're, we're still undercounting the number of kids who need support. We know that only about half of kids who um, could benefit from mental health services get them. So this is um, sort of just a, uh, an opportunity that, that we're missing at this point, but we also need to make these services more available and, and it can't just be to the emergency rooms. We need to make sure that there are integrated care providers. Those are like school-based mental health providers or providers in primary care offices. We need to make sure that mental health support is there where kids go and that they can get supported so that it doesn't take overcoming all these hurdles and barriers and referrals to get to where they need to go. So um, I, I think that that's our, really our biggest uh, you know, next step as a mental health field is to make sure that services and opportunities for prevention are accessible. Um, and so that, that's kind of what I do on the other side of my, um, my professional world is to provide school-based suicide prevention services. So I think at this point, um, I think most states and and um, and 
and uh, mental health boards get it that suicide prevention is important and it needs to be done earlier and it can't just be something that's done in your junior or senior year of high school. These need to be done in in middle school or potentially um, you know elementary school to give kids the language of how to get help. Yeah, that's such an important point. When kids write to us and, and say that they are worried about telling their parents or afraid to tell their parents or afraid their concerns will be dismissed, we always, in our replies to these kids, urge them to find another trusted adult to talk to. And often that trusted adult we suggest is a school counselor or a school nurse or even a teacher or coach. Uh, it's important for kids to have a whole network of people that they trust and people they can go to um, who could point them in the right direction, set them on the right path. There's so many good points um, there. And I would say as a parent, if you have not had a very specific conversation to say, um, I would absolutely encourage you to talk to me if you're ever dealing with an emotional crisis or if you ever feel like ending your life, I want to be a person that you can trust to give this information. Because you may assume that. You probably assume that. But, but the data are very clear that most kids won't tell a parent. They don't wanna disappoint them. They don't wanna further burden them. And as a parent, and most of the parents I talk to who have had children, who have had thoughts of, of wanting to die or take their lives, like are so shocked. They're like, no, of course you could tell me. I would, I would gladly take this burden and share it with you. But, but the kids don't, when they're in that state, they're not, they're not understanding that. So you have to be very explicit and go to them with a brief conversation I just need you to know I'm going to be there for you. And then the teachers, those other folks, um, people in a child's life see different parts of them. Sometimes it's the lunch lady or the person who cleans up for the school that has a great read on a child. So we actually want to educate the coaches, the gym teachers, the, uh, the um, English teachers, the arts. And, and we want everyone to have an ability to recognize a youth at risk. Um, and understand that kids show different parts of themselves to different people. And so if everyone is part of that broad safety net, we've got a much better chance of reducing the suicide rates in this country, um, which, which again are unfortunately at an all-time high. So we need to do better. We need to invest in this and understand how we each can play a role. And I know it sounds cliche, we all play a role in suicide prevention. That is absolutely true. There's not a single person who can't help be there for a young person, and, and help save a life. Well, we often get letters from kids who, who want to help. They write and say they have a friend or they have a friend with an older sibling who they feel is in trouble, who is um, contemplating um, self-harm or actually engaging in self-harm or thoughts of suicide. What advice would you give to kids who want to play a role, who want to be helpers? So... It's very stressful for a young person to have a friend who is telling them they want to hurt themselves or they don't want to be alive anymore. It's really, you know, it's hard enough for an adult to hear it. It's hard enough for a counselor to hear it. And they're trained in this. So you've got a young person knowing that their friend's life may, may be on the line. So we try to keep it simple. Whenever you're communicating during a crisis, you don't want to make it very complicated. So there's uh, in our program uh, that we, we collaborate with a group called uh, MindWise Innovations to deliver a program called The Signs of Suicide, or SOS. And they have a, a simple message. It's called ACT. So, and the, the components of that um, for, for the teens, for the high schoolers and middle schoolers that learn it is acknowledge, care, tell. Acknowledge your friend is in pain, is in distress. 
Um, show that you care in, in the way that's best for you. It doesn't have to be perfect. You show, you show them that they care in the way that makes sense for you and then tell a trusted adult. If your friend um, was having an allergic reaction or having a seizure or having something that was uh, potentially fatal, you would not keep this a secret. You would get them help because you care about them and you want to keep them safe. So I know it sometimes feels like you're betraying them, but a friend who has the opportunity to grow and live and love is a person that can still be your friend. Um, so we need to take this absolutely seriously. Um, so acknowledge, care, tell is the message that works very simply. And we've seen it work thousands and thousands of times for young people to, to, to understand that and, and act on it. And knowing that getting help for your friend or getting help for yourself is a sign of strength. It's not a betrayal. It's not a, a loss or a sign of weakness. It is absolutely a sign of emotional strength and that they, you care about this person and their future more than anything. And that sometimes that means temp going against their temporary wishes. Um, so that's, that's one of the messages we provide. Yeah, that's a wonderful message. Um, many kids are so empathetic and they do want to truly do something helpful. And I think parents don't know how to advise them. Um, that That's great info. And I'll just add, they sometimes feel like they're in a bind. They have someone who trusts them and they tell them, you're the only one I trust with this information. And so it's, it's again, if they're not, if they don't have the messaging to let that person know, listen, I care about you. And boy, um, the fact that you trust me is amazing. I know I care about you, but this is not something um, that's healthy for me to keep or to you to keep. Um, we can actually get you better. Um, there's actually lots of treatments that, that work. And again, it's, we just need them to stop and, and reflect and say, I'm not going to take this on. Because I have worked, um, I, I've, I've done treatment with individuals who are so distressed by the fact that their friend is put, like asking them to hold this secret. That's its own stressor. So I don't want any, any kid to feel like they have to be someone else's treatment provider. Um, so really, it's, it's not fair to anyone in that situation. So uh, we know why kids would want to do it, but we we got to help them not put that on themselves or teachers too. We all kinds of people get told this information. This is not a this is not a time for confidentiality. This is a time to mobilize the resources and and safety network to keep a young person um, doing well emotionally. Yeah, it's a big terrible secret to ask anyone to keep. Hundred percent. Well, Dr. Ackerman, we like to conclude our podcast by asking each of our guests uh, this question. It highlights our core belief is that children are the world's most important people. If we as a society actually embraced that idea, what would we do differently to better support the mental well-being of kids? First of all, I love that core belief, and it should be everyone's uh, foundational belief because you know kids are our future, but also, um, it's an investment that makes sense. Uh, I think we should make, make sure that kids, um, both in their schools, in their families, um, in all aspects of the world, um, have an understanding that emotional health is as important as physical and academic health. Uh, we, we sometimes have these, um, these aspirations and goals, and whether it's, you know, maybe to, to reach this level of, of academics or professional competence or athletics. And we somehow have managed to separate emotional um, growth out of that. I'm not, I'm not sure why or how, but I think we need to make sure that social-emotional learning 
early in life, in kindergarten and, and even earlier, is a huge part of, of everything that we're looking at. We'd focus on providing parents and caregivers and those who work with kids the skills to make sure that they're managing behaviors effectively without undermining the emotional development, unintentionally usually, but that they actually know how to raise up kids to feel good about themselves. Because we know that how a child feels about themselves early in life plays a major role in their trajectory of, of opportunities, of what they care about, of how they get along with other kids. So even though I do a lot of work with teenagers and preteens, this starts early. This starts about giving kids language, starts giving them the relational tools, um, and the types of things that end up being risk factors for suicide later on in life are things that if we invest in early, um, and we really give, again, it has to, it can't be in a isolation. We can't say like, parents just need to do better. We need to provide structure and the tools to make sure they're in a position to be successful too. Because I don't think we do enough of that. We're like, you know, you have all these courses and trainings for everything in life and the parent, you, you know, you're, one day you're a parent and you, you hope you do well. And luckily there's resources like highlights and things like that that you can try to learn from. But I think we could invest a lot more there. And then I mentioned a few before, things like integrated care, where we help mental health resources be at the point of contact where people are. We've got a, um, a, a, a campaign at the hospital called On Our Sleeves, which is promoting lots of mental health resources to families. So uh, you know, that's onoursleeves.org is a huge resource for people to families to learn how I can intersect with this emotional piece really well. Um, and then screening and prevention is really important. So very practically, um, am I asking the right questions? Am I having direct conversations? And have we reduced the stigma of mental health and the topic of suicide in different aspects of our communities, like schools, faith-based communities, our, you know, our, our different places of, of, of work and worship? And, um, and that's a start. <laughs> so we got, we got work to do. These conversations are critical. And I, I just thank you for let me let me talk a little bit about it. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Thank you. You've given us a lot to think about in that answer to that important question. Although I didn't read any actual kids' letters in this episode, I do think it's important for us to hear a kid's voice. So I'd like to share a poem that 12-year-old Thomas wrote and sent to us. And I think it's pretty powerful. Uh, it was untitled, but it's Thomas wrote, I keep falling. It's not getting better no matter what I do. I can't fix it. My depression is bad, it overtakes me. No matter what I do, I keep falling. My hole is more than six feet deep. I hate it. It is not so sleek, this hole of mine. Pulling me out will take some time, until I met you. You pulled me out. I am doing fine now. I am not falling. I think that poem says a lot. Dr. Ackerman, thank you again for your time and for helping us see what we can do as grown-ups who love kids to catch children who may feel that they are falling into a hole. Thank you so much, Christine, for having me and for having this important conversation. Thanks for all you do. Our pleasure. We are honored to be able to elevate kids' voices and share with you some of what they share with us. Whether a child's concern is big or small, unique or universal, serious or sure to easily work itself out, it's real to the child and matters deeply. 
We've come to see that in every letter kids have sent to us over the years, there are implicit, overarching questions embedded within. Do you care? Am I loved? Do I have a place in the world? A place in the lives of the people I love? We hope kids believe us when we say in many more words, yes, yes, yes. Let's all lean in to give kids what they really need and want. More listening, more understanding, and more connecting. This podcast is an extension of the book, Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids. Publishing this August and available for pre-order now, everywhere books are sold. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to help us reach more grown-ups who care about kids. And if you'd like to send a comment or suggestion to me directly, please email me at christine at highlights.com.